Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 38 of the Essential X Lapsed, where your humble host is uh, quite the hurting unit indeed. Um, I think I mentioned last episode that I was going in for my second of three crowns, and uh, boy, um, this one hurt. <laughs> this one, uh, I was warned ahead of time. The uh, dentist told me that due to where this one was and uh, exactly how much work they were going to have to do to uh, get to what they needed to get to, this one was going to leave me quite sore. And um, I don't know why I didn't uh, put too much stock into that. I, you know, I figured oh, I made it through one, and it didn't, you know, it didn't bother me all that much. You know, I was a little bit slurry afterwards, but uh, overall, it didn't, didn't, it wasn't that bad, right? It could have been a lot worse. This one, oh. Boy, um, I literally felt like I was in a fight <laughs> after I got out of there. It was brutal. Um, the numbness did not wear off until like I woke up in the middle of the night and realized that uh, that the numbness had gone. Um, I was actually supposed to appear on uh, our friend Pat Sampson's show, uh, The Longbox Crusade, yesterday, and I just couldn't do it. I was ready, willing, but unfortunately not able, and I didn't... Uh, I didn't want to put them out by trying to uh, perform and uh, only slurring things up and uh, coming across as, uh, you know, a complete and total mess. Or, you know, a, uh, I guess a drunk, because I was, I was slurring something fierce. Uh, my, uh, my cheek was all, like, sorts of swollen. It was red. It was just, like, it really, it looked like I, would, I had been in a fight. And uh, when I saw the wife, she, like, kind of... I don't want to say she recoiled, but, you know, her eyebrows went up, and I, I basically said, you should see the other guy, which, I mean, doesn't make any sense here, because, I mean, the other guy in this case was my very, very pregnant dentist. So, I mean, what are you going to do? It's uh, starting to get better. I'm still in very, very, uh, I don't want to say pain, but uh, it's very tender, uh, to the point where, like, uh, one of my eyes is kind of, not so much swollen shut, but kind of squinty. <laughs> Because it was a, it was actually the very last tooth on the left side, um, the on the top, and it's, boy, I swear when they when they pumped the Novocaine in, it felt like they had a needle into the bottom of my eyeball. So still a little tender, still a little on the mend, but uh, well, we got us a book to talk about today. So how about I stop yapping about my problems and we get into uh, some X Men problems here. We're going to take a look at issue 28 of X Men, had a January 1967 cover date, so we are in a new year, or a new cover year anyway. The story's called The Whale of the Banshee, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth, inks Dick Ayres, letters Artie Simic, edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, we open at the uh, corner of East 57th and 5th in Manhattan, where a strange, screaming figure soars over the heads of many panicked New Yorkers. They see they're also all holding their heads as though they're hearing something absolutely deafening. And, I mean, I probably could have just said Banshee is screaming overhead, but eh, we'll at least try and play along, right? Oh, and also, as, as he passes, or as this figure passes, uh, all the nearby normies have now fallen unconscious. Banshee, I, I mean this screaming figure, changes the uh, sonic pitch of their cry, which vibrates a nearby window so hard that it shatters. And behind the broken glass is what this fellow wants, and it's a painting. Not like a famous or valuable one or anything, at least not that I know of, but it's the one that he wants, and so he takes it. Later, the owner of this gallery is interviewed by the police. 
Now, the owner confirms that uh, out of the many art treasures housed here, the one that was stolen was, uh, relatively speaking, worthless. Not, not, one of the, uh, not one of the pricier items there. It's uh, just a Gaelic landscape, which uh, Stan chimes in to let us know means Scottish Highlands. And, you know, I went to Google to confirm this, only to be reminded about how horrible search engines have become over the past decade and a half or so. You see, I typed in Gaelic landscape, and naturally, the first several pages was basically Google trying to sell me stuff. It was either landscaping services or books with the word Gaelic and or landscape in their title. And I mean, this is a bit of a tangent here, but I, I feel like we need an alternative to Google at this point. Something that like, can't be bought by folks. I mean, I, I know I'm not the only one of my vintage here who's used to the internet being a certain way, but uh, you all remember when we could actually get information when we use search engines and not just commercials? Not just ads for stuff to buy? Oh, well. Anyway, back to the Xavier School, where the professor is trying to test the limits of their newest member and field leader's abilities. We're talking, of course, about Calvin Rankin, the mimic, and also his potentially permanent absorption of the X-Men's powers. And so, Cal is flying in circles around the Xavier estate, with those circles growing incrementally larger with each pass. And this is basically just to see how far he can be from his teammates while still holding on to their powers. And it does turn out that he can go decently far, but eh, the powers aren't quite permanent here. Once he gets too far, his wings start to shrink away. So Cal realizes this as well as we do. Powers ain't permanent but he still takes solace in the fact that he is the most powerful X-Man that there is. He then returns to the gang, and as per usual, he's kind of a dick about it. Now, Xavier breaks away to check in on Cerebro, which gives uh, Cyclops the opportunity to chat up the Mimic. Now, he tells him that there's more to being field leader than giving orders. He's got to learn to take them as well. Cal, who I don't need to remind you, is kind of a dick, throws the fact that Scott nailed Warren in the back with an optic blast not too long ago. And Scott's comeback is basically like, watch it, Buster. But, I mean, he can't deny it. Our scene shifts, and we're over to the headquarters of the dreaded Factor 3, or at least some Factor 3 grunts. Uh, we meet a baddie called the Ogre, who is stood at a computer console where he reveals that he's somehow deduced the location of the X-Men's secret headquarters. And I gotta ask, is it the great big X-Mansion where the X-Men's vehicles all take up from? You know, the, the one where Cyclops and Iceman were dropped off by an ice cream truck back in issue two? The one whose owner is the, the guy who's always seen with the X-Men but claims not to know him? Is, is, it, is it that place? Because if so, these guys are a lot smarter than Magneto ever was, and uh, hey, maybe we'll find out that they're stronger too, or at least one of them is stronger. Anyway, the ogre rushes down a ladder in order to inform our new screaming pal, the Banshee, of what he just learned. He uh, sees that the Irish fella is admiring his stolen painting while enjoying a very stinky smoke session with his fancy-ass pipe. Anyway, the ogre tells Banshee where he can find the X-Men, and he asks that he be ready to attack when the time comes. And uh, Banshee's like, yeah, sure, yeah, that's fine, and uh, I'll, I'll be ready, but also I'm out of tobacco, so uh, he'll have to restock. Next we know, Banshee is once again screaming in Manhattan, knocking out fools left and right. He enters the O'Neill tobacco shop to grab his stanky stuff, and an old man who is hard of hearing sees this go down and decides to close the metal gratings outside the shop to lock the Irishman inside. Now this barely slows our man down because he could just scream his way through, so this was probably just there to, uh, to facilitate the opportunity of us seeing just how powerful this sonic scream can be. Now, we hop back to the mansion where... 
<sighs> Stop me if you heard this one before. Cerebro has just been pinged by the most powerful mutant threat ever. Even more powerful than Magneto. So you've heard it here first. Banshee is more powerful than Magneto. Factor 3 is more intelligent than Magneto. It's not a good day to be Magneto. Now, let me see if I can get this line right here. I've tried it several times, but saying Xavier with the, my mouth the way it is is very, very difficult, so I'm, I'm kind of kind of slipping that one up. So let's try it again here. Scott asks Xavier if he should have the Mimic ready the team to head into Manhattan. And um, it's worth noting, he actually has to correct himself here to make sure that he refers to Cal as their new field leader. It's basically Scott going like, should I have, uh, uh, I mean, should I have the Mimic do this? Now Chuck tells him to cool his jets, because it would appear as though this new threat it's not going to stick around in Manhattan for that long. It's actually headed their way right now. Let's shift scenes to uh, be reminded that there is a female member of this team, or at least a female associate of this team. Let's check in with her right now. She is sitting under a tree with creepy Ted Roberts while listening to some tunes on the radio. Now, I mean, this is a really, really bad subplot here. I mean, the Gene subplot's okay, but part of the Gene subplot is really... I, I just don't get the importance of it. You see, she really wants to know why Ted is so driven to succeed. I mean, this is like the crux of her existence right now. Why is Ted so driven? Even though I thought we already figured this out last time. You know, he's been in the you know the shadow of his older brother. He's trying to he's trying to shine and stand out on his own, basically. I don't know why she's still wondering. I, and also, I mean, at the same time, why even question it at all? Some folks are just driven. I, I mean, I wish I were one of those people. Anyway. The music that's playing on the radio is interrupted by a news report. You see a painting and some tobacco were stolen, and Jean instantly worries that this could be the mutant menace that Xavier had been expecting. And, you know, uh, Xavier did mention at the end of, or actually in the middle of last issue, that he felt someone trying to get into his mind here. Uh, it was the Puppet Master, but there was also something else that he kind of alluded to, so I'm guessing this is the something else. Now, Ted balls up his fist, it's very adorable, and he hopes that this gets cleared up with the quickness, and Gene assures him that it will. Back to the ogre. Now, the ogre is off remotely starting five-alarm fires at some abandoned warehouses. And I just tried to Google what exactly a five-alarm fire was, but naturally, it just tried to send me to companies called five-alarm fire. Uh, real good help there, Google gang. I swear I didn't intend on railing on this today, but uh, I feel like we really really need a less commercial search engine option. I mean, again, I want information, not a friggin' advertisement. Anyway, let's let's try Wikipedia then. And, oh, they want $2.75 from me. Okay, okay, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Okay, here we go. In New York City, a five-alarm fire necessitates the use of, wow, a lot of folks and uh, equipment here. Let's go through it. 21 engine companies, 11 ladder companies, 6 battalion chief units, 1 squad company, 1 rescue company, 1 division chief unit, 1 deputy chief unit, 1 RAC unit, 1 satellite unit, 1 safety battalion chief unit, 1 SOC battalion chief unit, 1 tactical support unit, 1 field communications unit, 1 field communications battalion chief unit, 1 communications unit, 1 mask service unit, 1 air recon chief unit, 1 mobile command unit, and one planning section chief unit. That's 44 units and 198 firefighters. And huh, I wonder if the 198 mutants left after M-Day has anything to do with the five alarm system. Probably not, but you can just see how small my worldview is in that I compare it to that. Anyway, so yeah, Ogre, who 
I'm desperately finding, trying to find a way to organically squeeze in a Revenge of the Nerds reference here, but I, I can't find an opportunity. He's uh, remotely setting a really, really, really big fire. Now, he's doing this to stir up some pandemonium for uh, reasons, I guess. And the reason, well, it's, it's kind of silly here. It's to distract people from seeing the Factor 3 ship depart from their secret base, and... I mean, I'm not really sure anybody would give half a damn saying this, but, uh, okay. Set fires, whatever. Uh, anyway, Ogre tells Banshee that their mission here is to kidnap Professor X. And, oh, um, they also seem to know that Xavier is a mutant and, uh, you know, associated with the X-Men, so these idiots are smarter than literally everybody else in New York. And, uh, and I also don't need to remind you that they're also smarter and stronger than Magneto. So, I mean, Factor 3 is just where it's at. Anyway, back at the mansion, the X-Men dutifully flip switches and turn dials. Because, uh, I, I have no idea. They just do. They're in a room flipping switches and turning dials. Just then, they hear a progressively louder scream approaching. Then, the window shatters and in flies Banshee. Our heroes recoil in pain from the auditory attack, and they are rendered unconscious. Banshee then uses his Dick Tracy signal watch to call the ogre, and Ogre tells Sean to get out of there quick before the mimic wakes up. So, I mean, Factor 3 seems to know a heck of a lot about our heroes here. Ogre himself then flies in. Uh, we learn that he's not a mutant, and therefore doesn't have to worry about Cal Rankin stealing any of his powers, since, you know, he doesn't have any. I mean, I guess maybe if Cal really wanted to steal the ogre's beer belly, I guess he could? Maybe? I don't know. Maybe not. So, uh, anyway, the ogre swoops in using his mechanical booty gimmicks. He snags the professor and makes a run for it. Only once he's in the, uh, the yard, he winds up tripping over a TK'd branch because, you see, the other ex-person has arrived. It's Marvel Girl. Now, Ogre and Jean engage in a, in a bit of a skirmish, long enough for the rest of the X-Men to regain consciousness and go back on the attack. And, uh, well, hmm, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, the Ogre, I mean, this absolute goofball, is able to hold off all six X-Men. All six of them. Uh, he's only taken down when Professor X, who is still hogtied, rolls under him to, you know, trip him up. So I guess Xavier saves the day once again. And it's at this point that the ogre now finally realizes that he's outnumbered. I, I mean, he was able to take out six X-Men. That's the original five plus Mimic, right? But six X-Men and a hogtied old man? Th that's too much? And I, I, hmm, I feel like I have to ask this. Uh, why were the Professor's legs bound? I mean, that's almost like an insult, right? I mean, oh, well. Next we know, Banshee swoops back in to scream some more and to help his buddy escape back to their secret ship. And Sean is quite disappointed when the ogre returns empty-handed, so he does not have the professor. The ogre then accuses Banshee of trying to sabotage their mission, which, I don't know, seems like an out-of-nowhere sort of statement to make. Banshee assures him that this isn't the case, but uh, now I feel like we readers have something to keep an eye out for. Maybe there's more to this Banshee than uh, we previously thought. Anyway, we go back to the X-Men, all six of them, plus their creepy bald leader. And we get a panel here that has sort of kind of become infamous, uh, depending on how much of a fake-ass comics historian you might be. Here, the Beast is working on installing some new defense equipment when he asks Jean to TK him a pair of pliers. And so, well... She, she does TK him a tool, but it's a screwdriver, right? So it's not pliers. Uh, she says they're pliers, but it's actually a screwdriver, to which Hank says, you're a credit to your gender, Jeannie, which, 
I mean, could be taken in a few different ways, right? Uh, now, I'm guessing that this was just a miscommunication between writer and artist, but it can certainly be viewed as be sarcastically mocking Jean for, you know, being a doofus. And this panel even got a mention in the Marvel No Prize book number one, January 1982 cover date. And in it, Stan says, quote, The feminist movement got its start in the pages of X-Men number 28, where Marvel Girl levitates a screwdriver to the Beast, calls it a pair of pliers, and the Beast replies, You're a credit to your gender. Who boy. It's, it's kind of funny, no matter how you look at it, right? there. There's a little humor to this, and uh, I'm guessing that the eagle-eyed letter hacks of the Silver Age will not let this one slide. So, I already... Can't wait to hear Stan spin on this. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, Professor X then produces some chocolate chip cookie-looking discs for his charges to place inside their masks to cover their ears from a banshee holler. Now, the professor doesn't wear a mask, right? He does not wear a mask. So instead, he pulls out this wad of nastiness and asks Jean to gently insert it into his ears, which is the way my adults-only X-Men fanfiction began. <clears throat> but anyway, Cerebro starts pinging, even though no one can hear it. Then the Banshee swoops in, and, uh, yeah, he screams on in. Unfortunately for all Sean, however, his yelling ain't affecting the clog-eared X-Men. Cal Rankin then flips a switch that triggers a steel mesh netting to scoop Sean up. And, I mean, it's always a net, isn't it? Professor X then bombards the Banshee with a psychic assault. Mimic then mimics the Banshee whale to hammer Sean himself... Then, the Beast draws a friggin' gun and fires a gas pellet at their Irish enemy. And I, I didn't realize that the X-Men are now immune to gas, but I suppose we'll allow it. I mean, they are in an enclosed area here, and there's a gas bomb that just went off, but uh, all it does is knock out the Banshee. Everyone else is fine. Uh, maybe, this, uh, maybe those chocolate chip cookies have a gas repellent in them, I don't know. Anyway, Banshee's out cold. And then he's loaded into a pressure suit and tossed into a big glass box. Which, I mean, the X-Men themselves have been thrown into big glass boxes like a half dozen times so far, so stands to reason that they'd figure that this is probably a good way to trap people. So, hey, why not steal a page out of the books of every villain they've fought so far? Now, Scott then excuses himself to head into the dungeon or the cellar. It looks like a dungeon. It's, it's a very strange-looking place. He goes down to the cellar to grab an oxygen tank. Now, while there, down there, he notices a door which the professor forbade any of the X-Men from opening. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be. I think this is the first time we're seeing this door, but Cyclops is making it sound as though this is a thing we ought to be aware of. Stan even drops a footnote here, promising that we'll eventually find out what's behind this door, but also to maybe not hold our breath waiting, because uh, maybe they're not ready. Maybe they don't know yet. Anyway, from here, the Mimic heads out to patrol the area and try to find the Ogre. Now, Ogre sees the most powerful X-Man flying overhead and decides that it's now the perfect time for him to strike again. And he's going to go back in and try to kidnap the Professor once more. He re-enters the mansion and blasts the X-Men with his Repello Ray, and this knocks them all out. So, not only is Magneto's reputation taking a hit this issue, the X-Men, well, they kind of suck this time out, don't they? They're just being, they're being taken out left and right. Anyway, the Ogre sees Banshee, who's just begun to stir in his glass cube jail. Ogre calls Sean a failure and suggests that he's of no use to Factor 3. He then goes to crank up the Repello Ray to deadly force to take Sean out. But you remember how Cyclops was down in the dungeon? Well, that means he didn't feel the effects of the Repello Ray, and so he optic blasts the baddie's gun to pieces. The Ogre goes to escape, only to find himself attacked by the Mimic, who makes relatively short work of him. 
Now, once Ogre is KO'd, Professor X lifts whatever psychic hold he had over Banshee. And I didn't realize he had any psychic hold over him, but okay. Anyway, Sean is able to free himself from both the cube and the suit. He then removes the headband that he's been wearing for the entire issue, and, uh... Yeah, my bad. I probably should have mentioned that he's been wearing a goofy-looking headband for the entire issue. And you see, the gimmick here is uh, the headband had a bomb in it. It's kind of like one of those Suicide Squad collars. Xavier knew this, but couldn't actually do anything about it without blowing the Banshee's brains all over the house. And so they had to wait until the ogre was out of control to make their move. Now, Sean reveals here that he's actually one of the good guys, and that he was only working with Factor 3 so that they wouldn't kill him. And that's that. That's the end of the issue. Next episode, we'll be taking a look at the Mimic versus the Super Adaptoid, and, um... Boy, I hope that's a little bit more exciting than it sounds. But we'll worry about that next time. Uh, For now, let's uh, talk about the introduction of one of the more enduring characters of the Silver Age. Our man, Sean Cassidy the Banshee, who I didn't mention it during the synopsis. Uh, He's drawn to look, uh, well, very homely. He's a a, a horribly ugly man. (laughs) Very ugly here. I don't know if this is like a sort of artistic shorthand, but... uh, he looks unlike any human I've ever seen before. Looks like maybe he chased a few too many parked cars. You know, he's very, very bizarre looking. Now, this was one of the issues that I've probably only ever read once before. Usually when I try a, uh, a Silver Age X-Men reading project, I don't get quite this far. You know, I, I mentioned uh, last episode that I didn't realize that the, the Mimic was back so quickly. You know, I think I kind of... I don't know, conflate where these characters come back or appear for the first time. I I have them all over the board here within the first, say, 50 or so issues because everything after 50 to me is uh, Polaris and Havoc, you know? And I'm sure that's an oversimplification at the very best, but uh, that's kind of how I have it broken up in my head here as someone who hasn't hasn't really gone through these stories in over 20 years at this point. So I didn't realize that uh, Banshee first appeared and... Revealed that he was actually a good guy in his, uh, you know, very first appearance. I could have sworn that it'd gone a couple of issues of him as a bad guy, but I guess not. Uh, it's weird what memory does to you, you know? Speaking of memory, um, Factor 3. Factor 3 is a uh, group that I, you know, I don't think too much about. I don't think anybody really does, but I could have sworn they had something to do with, uh, that whole evil empire thing that Steve Englehart would do in the mid-70s, like around the time of the uh, the Amazing Adventures Beast stories and into uh, the, the Captain America stuff, but I guess not. I guess I misremembered that. Not that I was necessarily ready and or interested in doing a fake-ass comics history segment on Factor 3, but uh, I did look to see uh, how large they'd be looming, and I uh, was pretty surprised to come to the realization that they're not going to be around for terribly long. They're going to be around for like the next 10 or so issues, but they will loom large for those 10 issues. They're going to be a, uh, a consistent threat until about X-Men 39 or 40 or so. So I suppose we could look at this as the beginning of the Factor 3 arc. And one thing, I, I do find it interesting that they've already uh, gone to such lengths to kind of put this new threat at like a higher level than all the previous ones. We have Professor X saying that this new mutant threat is pinging Cerebro to a point that uh, Magneto hadn't even done before, right? We're also seeing that Factor 3 knows a heck of a lot about our characters. They know where the base is. They know that uh, 
they know about the mimic being a part of the team they know professor x is part of the x-men it's um pretty interesting that they're being positioned as you know the worst threat ever this is a reminiscent of um you know juggernaut getting punched across the planet by onslaught you know as a way to show that onslaught was the real threat now i can't claim to uh, remember a blessed thing about this factor three story arc but uh you know, I'm here for it. I'm definitely here for it. I'm looking forward to an extended arc here, even if it's uh, even if it bebops from subplot to main plot over the course of the next ten issues or so. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I feel like uh, the X Men need they need some direction in as far as their threats are concerned. Right? We're starting to hit the right notes with the soap opera sort of uh, storytelling. It's just that the threats they've faced up to this point during the Roy Thomas tenure have been. A little lacking. I mean, we had the Geek Squad with, uh, you know, Plant Man in them. Uh, we had Lucifer, the Locust, the Cool Cool Can. I mean, it's been kind of scattershot. So if we can, you know, zero in the, uh, you know, the threats against our team and keep amping up the soap operatic elements of the storytelling, I think we're in for some good times ahead. Maybe, just maybe, we've weathered the storm, right, throughout the, the terrible 20s, and uh, we're about to enter... A brand new golden era of the Silver Age X-Men, but uh, I guess we'll find out as we continue. Anyway, I think that's all I have to say about this issue, but uh, we're not done yet. Let's hop into the mutant mailbag here. And first, we're going to hear from Shirley in Texas. This is uh, her second letter written into the, uh, to the bullpen here. Now, Shirley thought that the Locust was superb, yet corny. Hmm, didn't know you could be both. Uh, claims that uh, corniness of the villain aside, the only thing that spoiled the issue for her was the lack of Marvel Girl. Now, <laughs> this is funny. She says that Jean should respect her parents' wishes that she get a higher education, but this, this, damn it, is just going too far. You know, actually going about getting a higher education. How dare she? Uh, Stan basically tells her not to worry. Jean's gonna be around. I mean, if Shirley kept reading, she knows that... Uh, Nary an issue has gone by without some Jean Grey appearances or, or Jean actually getting involved and in, in, into her costume. Uh, he also mentioned something about Angel being knocked out of the skies, which makes me figure, makes me think that maybe Stan was reading another letter because it doesn't have anything to do with uh, anything here. Next up, we got Dennis in California, and this one's a pip. Uh, Denny prefaces by stating that this isn't a social note, nor is it a hate letter, but. He has a problem with the fact that this book is called X-Men when they have a female team member. He suggests Stan consider changing the name to X-People, to which I would say, uh, just shut up, Dennis. Come on, shut up. Uh, This fool also thinks that he deserves a no prize for pointing this out. I mean, what an absolute legend this Dennis is. What a hero. Stan says that uh, Dennis's no prize has hit the non-male, so basically not to hold his breath waiting for it. And he also asks uh, Dennis for his permission to call the book X-Men and Friend. So a perfect stand reply for a very annoying letter. We got Mark in Michigan coming up next with his second missive into the bullpen. Now, Mark has never, ever read anything as great as the X-Men's adventure against the Locust. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Mark was happy to see Professor X walking again using his uh, metal leg braces. He thinks the Locust should make a comeback either as a good guy or as a bad guy. And Stan suggests here that Mark is one of the very few lively Locust buffs out there. Um, But he says that they'll uh, comb the grass for the bugger all the same, but uh, probably not to hold his breath. And, you know, now I wonder what uh, Roy Thomas uh, thought of Stan's reply here in suggesting that 
yeah, maybe only a few people really dug the locust. Uh, I, I wish we had a Roy reply here, too. Anyway, on to Jack in California. Now, Jack owns the Mayberry's Baba Shop in Fresno, California, which I did look up, and despite the fact that Google really wants to sell you on locations and places and stores, doesn't appear to be still a thing in 2021, unfortunately. The Mayberry's Barbershop is uh, no longer, uh, you know, a place you can go. And it's also worth noting that, uh, you know, thanks to the Andy Griffith Show, there's a lot of Mayberry's Barbershops out there. Uh, Jack's last name here is Mayberry, so that's why it's called that, but... uh, I'm guessing a lot of the other ones are more out of uh, reference to the uh, the weird perverted barber on the Andy Griffith show. Anyway, Jack says that he stocks a bunch of marvels at his shop for the folks, you know, the patrons to read. And he finds the mags to be sharp and witty, and he's even planning on starting a subscription. Or, you know, maybe writing a letter <clears throat> into uh, the bullpen here to see if he'll be given one without actually asking for one. And yeah, Stan takes the bait. He offers old Jack his first title for free. Next, we got Ron in Jersey. He was happy that we got the opportunity to see the locust without his mask, citing that, uh, you know, we don't usually see our masked villains unmasked. Suggests that he'd like to see Magneto without his, which, I mean, I think that's going to be pretty underwhelming when he removes his helmet and you just see it's some, some old dude with white hair, right? Anyway, he likes having to look up all the big words that Hank McCoy uses. He says that his, uh, his dictionary is rather dog-eared at this point. He would like to better understand Cyclops' power, citing that he's seen it do everything from cutting a cake to rolling gods through a wall. He also asks why the Locust bothered to smack Psyche in the face, wondering if he'd hurt his hand on the visor. And uh, Stan says that uh, the Locust just got a blister on his pinky, so not to worry too much. And Stan then confuses Warren for being the one with the optic blasts, and then admits that they're uh, just as confused about everything as the readers are. But not to worry, because they do plan on devoting an entire episode to clearing it all up. Next up, we got Ron in Ontario, and uh, he's got a warning to Marvel, and it's don't take his Marvel Girl, damn it. He wants his Marvel Girl. But that's not all he wants. He also wants an X-Men 25 cent annual or special. He also suggests removing the world's greatest comic magazine tag from off of the Fantastic Four book and slapping it on the X-Men's book. He also invites Stan up to Toronto for a visit, to which Stan thanks him for the invite. He then goes on and on and on about uh, Marvel's international fan base, citing that uh, not only do they get letters from Canada and the UK and Australia, they even got a letter postmarked from Mars not too long ago. Next up, we got Barry Smith, Probably not Barry Windsor Smith from uh, Ontario, also in Ontario. Now, he would like to see the X-Men fighting mutants again, and asks why Cerebro hasn't yet pinged for Merlin. Merlin? Hmm. Now, he cites Journey into Mystery number 96, September 1963, cover date. Of course, that is the same month that X-Men number 1 hit the stands. And in it, Merlin the Mad says, quote, Nobody in medieval times suspected that I was one of the mutants on Earth, deriving my powers not from occult magic, but from within my own body. Now, I checked the Marvel Wiki here, and it does list Merlin, Mahayogi, as a human. The, uh, the mutant thing was a mistake. And Stan claims to have forgotten all about Merlin, but he's playing coy, you see. We're actually going to see old Maha Yogi again in just two issues' time, X-Men number 30. And, uh, you know, we might just have to cover that Journey into Mystery issue in an episode of Point One somewhere down the line. Finally, we got Geraldine in Minnesota. Now, Geraldine is a 19-year-old student nurse about to turn 20. I mean, if you're 19, of course you're about to turn 20. Uh, and also is a really big comic fan. 
And that's basically the gist of the first part of this missive, while also peppering in things about birthdays and birthday presents and stuff like that. Um, now, Gerilyn read a bunch of Marvels a year ago, but couldn't afford to keep buying comics. Well, now they can, and so they do, but they're hoping that their family members take the multiple hints. I mean, there are multiple hints in this letter, but they want their family to uh, buy them some Marvel subscriptions as birthday gifts. And you gotta wonder here, is this another appeal to Stan's nice guyitude? Hmm. Uh, now, Geraldine likes that Jean has gone off to college and hopes that maybe she'll realize how special Cyclops is after being around regular old college boys. Now we go to Stan's reply, where he once again takes the bait and gifts Jerry a complimentary sub to the X-Men. So it really is just that easy. Something tells me that that wouldn't really work nowadays. But, uh, hey, it worked back in the 60s, so uh, I suppose there is some precedent, isn't there? But those are the letters. Let's hop into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as the latest lowdown on Marvel's lighthearted luminaries for literature lovers at large. Whew, got it done. Okay, first item. Now, Stan thanks the writers of Stars and Stripes for their terrific write-up that they did on Marvel in a recent issue, and Stan does include some quotes here. First one is, Marvel is responsible for getting the collegiate crowd on the comics kick. Second one is, from the Ivy League to the Pacific Coast Conference, more than 100 college campuses have their own fan club chapter of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Quote, they're the first breed of super characters that young adults can really identify with. And finally, it's anything but a passing fad when the professors are reading them, too. Stan wishes he could go on quoting this uh, article over and over again. And, uh, you know, I did look for this issue in the uh, Stars and Stripes archives. Unfortunately, it's uh, all behind a paywall, and even if I were to pay, I'm not sure I'd be able to find it. So if anybody has access to this, uh, to this little ditty here, uh, please let me know, and we will discuss it on a future episode. The next news item is Marvel mags are hard to find in some areas. You know, we get people writing in saying that uh, Marvel books sell out so quickly. To which Stan suggests that the readers bother their newsstand vendors to stock the Marvels up front. I don't know how that would help them. If anything, that would make them sell out faster. So um, probably not in the best interests of folks who can't find the books as it is to facilitate their selling quicker. I don't know. Now, um, Stan suggests that uh, maybe these uh, news agents haven't yet realized the difference between a Marvel and an ordinary comic. Item. Stan asks that the faithful one stop sending money to Marvel for all the swag that he shills in these pages. You know, things like the mini books, the plastic figurines, the rings, the bubblegum cards, yada, 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 yada. He asks this because, you see, Marvel doesn't actually sell them. Those are all licensed things. You go to your store to buy that, you don't send Stan money for it. Hopefully all these uh, children got their, uh, their pennies and nickels and dimes back. Next item, Stan mentions how a couple months back they printed an ad which promoted a television show for another company's character because, well, now he's being inundated with letters about it. And, you know, if we flip back a couple months, we look at X-Men number 25... Hmm, we can see an ad for Saturday morning cartoons on CBS. Now, this ad features Space Ghost, The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Frankenstein Jr., The Impossibles, Dino Boy, and Superman. Hmm. Now, Superman says the following. Great Krypton, kids. Look at the fun and excitement CBS is sending you on Saturday. Captain Kangaroo at 8 a.m., Mighty Mouse Playground at 9, Underdog at 9.30, and at 11, see my amazing new adventures with Superboy and Crypto the Superdog. Now, apparently, Stan's been taken to task for running this ad uh, by several letter hacks. I 
Don't know why. Anyway, Stan says that he'd never go against the free press, so, you know, if another company's character's in an ad, they're going to run it. And he also sees this as a giant compliment. He cites the fact that a brand Ech is willing to shell out big bucks to plug their characters in a Marvel mag. He's like, hey, if they want to spend their money to promote in these better comics, they're all, you know, all the power to them. Though I doubt very seriously that DC National had really a whole lot to do with this ad and where it ran. I'm guessing this was probably just a CBS thing, and I mean, I'm not a betting man, but I'd probably guess that Stan maybe didn't even notice the Man of Steel being in it until he started getting letters about it. Uh, Stan then uh, wonders aloud if uh, maybe Marvel ought to try running ads in uh, the the competitions books, which, I don't know, kind of contradicts yourself there, buddy. You took it as a compliment, now you're going to return the compliment? Don't know, don't know. Our next item is that uh, there's a com- there was a comics fan convention held in New York City in July of this year, and the guest of honor was Jack Kirby, but uh, enough about Jack, because there was also another con just a few weeks later where Stan talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, and most of the Marvel bullpen were there, and everyone had a great time, so uh, Stan's convention, which doesn't even get named, which makes me question whether or not it was a real thing, uh, gets, uh, was a much more swing in time than the one in New York City where Jack talked and talked and talked. Our final item. Stan says that he's looking forward to hearing feedback on the Marvel Superhero TV Spectaculars and uh, to watch this space for some of that chatter in the months to come. Let's hop into the mighty Marvel checklist here. Uh, Fantastic Four number 59. We got a title of Doomsday, and it's probably the greatest FF spectacular of them all. It features Doctor Doom, the Silver Surfer, and the Inhumans, so once again, two out of three ain't bad. Spider-Man number 45 wraps up the Lizard storyline. Avengers number 36 features the return of, the, of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Daredevil number 24 features the return of Kazar. Plus, I mean, here's a running thing in Daredevil comics, Matt's secret identity almost comes out. I, I feel like it's always almost coming out and going back into the bin and coming back out again. It's Yeah, he's been dancing with this for... Uh, I guess since the 60s. Thor number 136 has Odin make Jane Foster an immortal so that she and Thor could get married. Strange Tales 153 features Nick Fury vs. Hydra. Again. And Doctor Strange vs. the Mindless Ones. Again. Suspense 86, Iron Man vs. the Mandarin. Again. Uh, We also have Captain America finding out the secrets of the Z-Ray. Tales to Astonish 88, Namor vs. Atuma, maybe again, I don't remember, and Hulk vs. the Boomerang. Sergeant Fury number 38 has the Howlers hit in the Mediterranean, and we get the scoop on the wounded Dino Manelil. Manelil? Manelil. I, I don't know how to say that name. Manelli. Why not? I don't know. Uh, we also got Marvel Collector's Items Classics number 7, which features reprints. We got Fancy Masterpieces number 6, which I'm guessing is just a misspelled fantasy. Um, it's reprints, nothing necessarily fancy about it. And Marvel Tales number 6, which, uh, yep, also features reprints. Now, if we direct our attention to the uh, Merry Marvel Marching Society box here, we'll find out that, once again, there's 26 new members. One of whom is named Robert Kelly, which I think it's pretty safe to assume isn't the uh, anti-mutant senator that we'll meet in the X-Men in years to come. But, folks, that's going to do it for our issue. Uh, We do have some letters in the mailbag, but uh, my mouth is very, very fatigued right now, so I'm going to hold them off till next time. But I do want to hop into our shout-outs and thank-yous here. Now, our last episode didn't do all that great on the Twitter machine, but it doesn't always. Uh, Regardless, I'd like to thank uh, Dave Schultz, Chris Bailey, Joe Crawford, and Walt Nealon for helping to signal boost the little program. 
Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse DeYoung, Pat Sampson, Jody Yarden, Jeremiah, Andrew Franklin, Billy D, Chris Bailey, and Walt Nealon for taking the time to click the little uh, thumbs up for me. It really makes me feel better than, uh, than it probably should, but uh, enough about my insecurity. I would also like to thank the patrons for uh, believing in this project and for uh, all of their support. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. You're all the best, and your support means the world to me. Now, before I inadvertently pop this crown off here, let's uh, let's take this one home. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, you could do so several ways. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at... 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com and anywhere you find noise on the internet. And finally, we do have the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. A whole slew of exclusive content over there if you're interested. Uh, if you're not, hey, we're still friends. No worries. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to spend some time with you today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.